0: Rory Ketland-Jones, I'm so happy to see your face there across the virtual world of Zoom. And it's particularly appropriate, I suppose, that we are doing this on Zoom, given that you are most famous for your having been the BBC technology correspondent for 14 or 15 years. 2007, roughly to 2021, you were at the BBC for 40 years incredibly and now you have left the organization but you are still you're a podcaster of course with movers and shakers the podcast you do about parkinson's you were diagnosed yourself with parkinson's you do this with Jeremy Paxman and Mark Mardell, former colleagues of yours at the BBC, and others. And as well as all of this, and you're a writer, of course, and you've written books, you are arguably not the most famous person in your house. I mean, your wife is pretty well known, but your dog, Sophie from Romania, is almost certainly of greater celebrity status than yourself. Absolutely. Uh, she's definitely the most famous
1: person in, in the household. Although, of course, she, she doesn't do public appearances because... She, She spent most of the first year uh, or, or certainly the first half of the year in her house, hidden behind the sofa and is still very, very shy.
0: So my first question, I mean, this would have been bizarre just a couple of years ago or so, but my first question is going to revolve around Sophie from Romania. And she is the rescue dog that you have. And she is, as her name suggests, from Romania. And for some reason, and you can perhaps try and explain this to those who are yet unaccustomed with Sophie, she just goes viral. So if you post a photograph of you walking her, or perhaps Sophie walking you, or your wife walking Sophie, the likes on Twitter or X just pile up. T- tell us a little bit about the phenomenon of Sophie.
1: Well, I should say that they certainly pile up when there's a photo, as there has been this week, in this past week of uh, us walking her, because that's a first. Uh, so I think it, it was around the, just before the Chris, Christmas uh, 2022, just over a year ago, that we got her. And very quickly... Uh, when I posted pictures, it kind of gripped people straight away because she was immediately very shy. And she was also rather beautiful and rather vulnerable looking. And it seemed to be a sort of Christmas story in some people's eyes. It, it really took us by surprise. I started a hashtag, Sophie from Romania, and very, very quickly people crowded onto it. There was a, 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 a DJ, Nick Grimshaw, uh, just after, after Christmas, uh, tweeted... Is is everyone else as obsessed with Sophie from Romania as I am? You know, I I was lying at home with a cold, just couldn't get away from the story. And wherever I go, uh, and wherever Diane goes, my wife, you know, who chairs very solemn and learned committees, people nearly always start by saying,
0: "Uh, how's Sophie? Your wife, of course, a professor at Cambridge (laughs) University. Now, Sophie is not your first dog. And in fact, just in the last couple of days or so you posted in solidarity with John Stewart of the Daily Show fame because he had been lamenting crying actually on his show about the loss of his dog and this triggered in you r- real sadness at the loss of yours
1: yeah and, and it's surprising to me because i didn't grow up with dogs at all i, uh, I grew up in this little one bedroom house flat in south london with my mum and pets were certainly banned and i was rather frightened of dogs but we got a dog 15, 16, 17 years ago, uh for one of our kids was being was having slight discipline problems. And we we said, if you're good till Christmas, you'll get a dog. Uh and we I suddenly found we got a dog in the end of October, and I realized it was Diane that really wanted the dog. And I was a bit dubious at first, but grew to absolutely adore this collie cross, who was in need of, people said you're mad to get a collie because they need so much walking. But It was at the right time for me because uh fighting the middle-aged flab i took up running with the dog and it was became an essential part of my morning routine i was always first out with the dog before seven rain or shine so we had this great bond and it was it was very sad when we lost her. i mean she was a very good age she was 16 which is ancient in dog terms but um Uh, it took us a long time to get over that.
0: Maybe there's something about converting to dogs later in life because we have two cocker spaniels and I kind of inherited them when I met my wife. This was a non-negotiable. I was not a dog person at all, brought up in London, just not interested, sort of faintly appalled in a sense, actually, at the idea of dogs and them bringing all the dirt into the house and so forth. Didn't want them on the sofa. Now, when I'm alone at night, if my wife's visiting her mom or whatever, I have the dogs on the bed with me, and it's it's difficult to imagine life without them. I love them to bits.
1: It is strange, isn't it?
0: I mean, I, I dream of um,
1: Sophie uh, even coming on on the onto the sofa with us. Let alone up uh, up to our bedroom. She has not been upstairs yet in her house, and she will accept a scratch behind the ears. She actually she she craves affection, but she's still very nervous about it. We we dream of her. Putting, this, uh, putting one paw in front of another and coming upstairs. In fact, there's a row of dog biscuits uh, placed up the stairs to tempt her, but she's only got to step four so far. So those biscuits are getting a bit <laughs>
0: dusty. Rory, as someone who understands technology as well as you do, and someone who has dedicated so much of your working life to technology, can you understand why Sophie has been such a viral hit? Can Have you been able to put your finger on what it is? Because it is extraordinary.
1: I'm not really sure that's technology so much as sort of sociology or, or the, um, you know, the, the psychology of crowds. Um, I, th- I think everybody, well, there's a very big constituency for dogs on and off the Internet. And I think there was timing. It was quite a, it was dark, a dark time, both literally and figuratively, uh, just before Christmas 2022, war in Ukraine and, you know, uh, cost of living crisis and so on. And it, lots of people keep saying to me, somebody said this morning, oh, I w- woke up and saw something dreadful about some committee hearing into the post office, which really depressed me. And then I clicked on the pictures of Sophie and everything felt a lot better. I think it's one of those things that like a sort of comfort blanket that people are clinging on to.
0: And with a condition such as yours, Parkinson's, which I can imagine is a sort of dominant presence in one's life, is there something about Sophie and maybe about dogs in general or pets in general that can help you to take yourself out of that condition, can help you to take yourself out of yourself? Well, in one way, you see,
1: um, she's, to be honest, she's been a disappointment to me because the, the previous dog, Cabbage, was very important in in my Uh, exercise regime it's very important with Parkinson's to keep moving exercise can can really sort of help you feel better Uh, and without the excuse of going out for a walk with the dog I've become a bit idle so in in that way yeah I mean I suppose the the thing is she is such a focus for our lives uh, that you know everyone's talking about her she you know she frankly pins me to the house because we obviously can't leave her with anyone else for me if we go away so uh, that's become very very awkward but you know she is something to think about rather than parkinsons because thinking about parkinsons can get rather dull
0: and yet you do this podcast as i said in my introduction movers and shakers how has that helped you live with parkinsons being around other extremely high flyers who also have the disease talking about it, joking, being lighthearted as well as serious. Has is, is that played a role for you, do you think, as well as no doubt being very helpful to other people with Parkinson's as well as those who don't have it?
1: I have to say it has been. Uh, it's, it's interesting because uh, I, I was just saying, oh, it's nice to have a distraction from Parkinson's. But actually, when we're recording episodes and we've just come off a, a big uh, week of recording uh, six episodes... It's a very immersive subject. It, 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 it's fascinating, and, and we're a kind of an anarchic collective. We're all organising this thing ourselves. So, you know, I organised for an episode on technology and Parkinson's, and sort of had two people in with different gadgets to measure it. We, we've been covering, you know, the light and the shade. We did a uh, an episode about Parkinson's on TV and film. Uh, and talked about the classic curb curb your enthusiasm enthusiasm episode where Larry David falls out with Michael J. Fox. and we've done a very dark episode on the end, you know the, the end of days, you know what you need to, needing to prepare for the end. So it, it and it it sounds gloomy, but it's it's also been fascinating because we've we've managed to assemble in our pub lure into the pub um, some really top specialists who come to explain the science behind Parkinson's, uh, the importance of nutrition, uh, exercise and so on. So some of it sounds
0: quite dark, but it is quite a jolly event uh,
1: recording an episode in a pub.
0: How has your diagnosis impacted your understanding or your feelings about mortality? And I ask that because my father died last year of mesothelioma. And that's overwhelmingly likely to be because he came into contact with asbestos at some point or points in his life. And one of the things that I took heart from was that although he died very early at the age of 73, as well as having had almost the perfect life, a wonderful, wonderful life, both professionally and personally, I took some sort of comfort in the fact that we are all in this together. And yes, some of us will die sooner than others. Some of us might live with diseases for a long time but we all all are whether we're prime ministers captains of england great artists composers we are all mortal has having parkinson's forced you to encourage you to think about questions of mortality
1: well not so much but partly because my diagnosis didn't come as a terrible shock in that i'd had cancer many years before, uh, a rare cancer behind the eye, a, a malignant melanoma, when I was in my late 40s. And that was really terrifying. That that led, led me to fear for my life. Uh, big, w- one of the most frightening aspects of it was that once they diagnosed it, they then sent me for a scan of my liver to see if it had spread. And obviously, thankfully, it hadn't. Uh, but I still go twice a year for a, a scan. And I've got progressively more blasé about it. But so so that has been lurking all along. And my wife and I kind of joke about it now, but she, we we came out of the diagnosis at Morpheus Hospital and went for lunch at a nice restaurant. And she said, yeah, well, better start thinking of the music for the funeral. Um, <laughs> we joked, but you know, there was some serious weight behind that that joke. So Parkinson's has was you know, oh, here's another bloody damn thing. But it doesn't feel like an instant arrow aimed at your heart. It feels like something that sort of grinds
0: you down gradually. Have there been positive elements to it, if that's not too bizarre? Enormously positive. I mean, there's a very very funny dynamic in our podcast
1: between Jeremy Paxman, who is massively gloomy, um, partly genuinely, but sometimes I think he plays it up a bit, and Paul Mayhew Archer, comedy script writer who does a comedy routine about parkinson's uh and he's a very much a glass half full person and we've had he has shown that there's incredible humor in parkinson's and yeah i i I, we've had lots of very light-hearted moments talking about it it's um we're a, a little club um we parkies as we call ourselves and there's a great community of people who've you know, who got their in-jokes. Uh, I, I went to the World Parkinson's Congress last year in Barcelona, met this great guy called Matt Eagles, who's had it since he was seven, extraordinarily, and he gave me his T-shirt set, which said, I'm not pissed I've got Parkies, um, which is a sort of common, common thing, really, because people do assume um, sometimes wrongly that you're pissed. Sometimes they're right uh, when you're staggering around, not looking very uh,
0: together. Talking about broadcasting now, and podcasting, of course, is a form of broadcasting, but have you, over the decades that you've been involved in it, working in it, and working with others in it, people at the very top of their game, as you have been, is there a quality that you can identify that is common to a lot of you? Is there something that really makes some broadcasters stand out from others?
1: Oh, well... I mean, the, 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 there's not a quality common to all of us because we're we're, we're all you know we're, we're not all superstars. I, I, the the quality that I thought was kind of most important was actually, strange enough, being a good writer, uh, and a, 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 especially in television, which I spent most of my career in, being someone who knew how to write to pictures, which is an extraordinary art, and I, I would put down as you know the great exponent of that alan little brilliant brilliant reporter uh, and a wonderful wordsmith and never clichéd never saying too much letting the pictures tell the story but just nudging the viewer in the right direction so i think for all the sort of you know technical changes in broadcasting and the fact that anyone
0: can do it now words still matter matt fry is not bad at writing to pictures either yeah, Matt Fry is very good too, yeah. Tell us then about the ways in which broadcasting has changed for professionals such as ourselves, given, as you say, now that everyone can broadcast because you can use your mobile phone. Well, I, I started 40 years ago in the very first newsroom I was in, in Leeds. Uh,
1: it was still shooting on film, so, and you went out with a, two, a two-man two crew or at a national level it was a three-man, and it always was, was men. And then when you came back, you had to wait for the, the film to go through what they called the bath, the processing business, before you could start cutting it. And there were no computers at all. The graphics were all done on cardboard, with um, animations being done by people literally pulling a piece out and revealing something beneath beneath it. So it was uh, an extraordinary business. And, of course, it was incredibly labour-intensive, probably too, you know, too many spare people are... are, are involved um when when we went out we we were sort of gobsmacked by the size of the yorkshire tv crews because in those days uh regional television was a li- license to print money for itv and they were better paid and there were far more of them and of course that's all changed completely thousands of jobs wiped out in that way and it's been democratized because as we've said to be on television, to have your own television program in in uh, the early nineteen eighties meant, meant being a a, a tycoon and own, uh, owning a, a television company, and now it means owning a telephone, and anyone can do it. But the fact that anyone can do it doesn't mean that there are not still great skills and people who can can do it well, who, who can stand out from the crowd.
0: How do you see AI changing broadcasting? Will the BBC's technology correspondent, at some point, be a robot? I've just
1: listened to a fantastic podcast with Marina Hyde and Richard Osman discussing that thing and saying that Hollywood will be wiped out and uh, soap operas will be wiped out. And even podcasts will be wiped out. There'll there'll be two... uh, Instead of us, there'll be two chatbots talking to each other. And I don't get it. I mean, obviously, there will be lots of changes... There will be lots of people who will be superfluous to requirements. You know, think about the animation industry, which is has, has already gone through one revolution from, you know, people drawing tons of pictures. I've, I've actually got on my wall an original Bugs Bunny illustration from Chuck Jones, who I interviewed when he came to do some pictures for the Museum of the Moving Image, and he, he drew very, very rapidly... Seven, eight, nine sketches on a on a tear off pad, and the whole crew dived on them afterwards, and I got one of them. But that that is the the, the pre computer version of animation, and uh, for the last 30 odd years, we've had the computer version of animation, and now we're, we're going to have the AI version, whereby you 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 say make me a make me a movie with Bugs Bunny, and boom, the computer does it. So there will be areas that will be automated. But don't forget that in terms of creativity, uh, in terms of the language used, the scripts, it's all dependent on what is out there already. There, There is nothing original. It is this word goes in front of that word, because I've seen that pattern, the algorithm says before. I saw an interesting thing today, an academic saying he could begin to tell which essay's were using chat GPT because they all used the expression delved into. And he showed on Google Trends the, the phrase delved into uh, spiking post-chat GPT. And it's obviously a, popu- a popular chat GPT coinage. So I'm sure large areas of the TV and media industry, more generally will be hollowed out. The, the, the middle ground, the kind of, yeah, that'll do stuff. But the high end and the the low end, the sort of amateur end, will we'll, we'll both continue to lead humans.
0: Thinking backwards for a moment rather than forwards, can you remember a change in technology or a development in technology while you were BBC tech correspondent that really made you sit up and think, well, wow. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's
0: a, it's a, the, the classic one it
1: was being at the... Unveiling the iPhone by Steve Jobs, because it was my first big story as BBC technology correspondent. And I'd been over in Las Vegas for the, the big gadget show there that happens every year. Uh, and I'd, I'd said to the BBC, we ought to take a day out to go and see what's going to happen at uh, Steve Jobs' back world. He's too snooty to come to CES. He wants his own show. And there's rumours it's going to be big. And they let, let me go over there with a the cameraman. And it was huge. And the reason I knew it was huge was because the, the people back in London were never very interested in the this technology stuff, uh, so they kind of tolerated it. But the minute the show was over, the unveiling of this device was over, I was getting phone calls from London saying, we've got to have you holding that phone. It was amazing. It was just imme- immediately a piece of technology that people got. It it There's something magical about it. And, and that's that's what, what happens, isn't it, with, with technology? It starts as magic, and very, very soon you're complaining about it and saying, why doesn't it do X, Y, and Z? But uh, that
0: was a magical moment. I think I remember years ago wondering whether we'd ever get to a point where we could see each other as we talked to each other mm-hmm. over the telephone. Now, I may be misremembering that mm-hmm. and projecting what we now know, of course, on the past, but it still strikes me as magical, or at least totally extraordinary that you and i can be talking to each other in this way over zoom i can see you you can see me or i could be facetiming or skyping or whatsapp videoing i think
1: more interesting is, is how long that's taken to happen because i think it was 1964 the world fair that the first video telephone was demonstrated and for years and years and years it was it was just too clunky for people to want it so uh, when 3g came out in the uk in the early 2000s the big selling point was oh you'll be able to you know what we now call facetime your, your your friends and and people just didn't do it i mean partly because it was expensive also because they felt awkward doing it it's 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 strange when suddenly something just becomes the way we do things i mean of course the pandemic was absolutely vital in promoting what we're doing now because it was a technology whose whose time had come because you know it solved all sorts of problems for those of us who suddenly had to work from home
0: but Rory you you studied art, an arts degree at Cambridge University do you as did I do you begin to understand how FaceTime works uh I, I'm reading a book you're, you're right I, I I
1: studied modern languages and I had never seen a computer there was one computer at my school and it was in the science block and only boys doing physics and wearing white coats were allowed to, uh, go near it. And that certainly wasn't me. Um, and then I did get in massively into computers in the, in the mid 1990s. Uh, I'll be, I'll be completely frank. I really struggle. I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to explain things like quantum computing, um, which sort of blow my mind and trying to translate those complex ideas for a mass audience is a huge challenge. I'm reading a book now called "How AI Thinks," and which sort of describes how AI is based on basically building a sort of brain in, inside a computer or, or mimicking some of the, the systems in, inside the brain. But it, it, it is extraordinarily hard to get your head around it, and I won't. I, w- I won't pretend that I really understand it.
0: You say you were surprised that it took so long for video telephoning to take on and to work in a way that was affordable and easy. Is there an area in technology that you're surprised now that we haven't invented? I suppose maybe that's not quite the right way of putting it, because otherwise you would be the inventor yourself. But is there an area that you're surprised is taking a while to become mainstream?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the classic one is is what comes after the smartphone people have always asked me what comes after the smartphone and i keep saying the smartphone is a revolution that is carrying on and will develop further but people have been betting and i've sort of bet for ages that there would be a kind of headset that you'd wear that would deliver information to you and uh superimpose video and and, and graphics on, on your world around you to help you get around and there was it was called google glass which was uh, a decade ago now I think it was a decade ago that it was discontinued and I wore it for three months I managed to persuade somebody in the BBC to pay for me to have one and I loved it and then eventually I realized that what everybody around me was saying was was true what my colleagues my wife my family and friends were saying to me which was that I looked an idiot that was true and that was the problem with it it was you know aesthetically unpleasing and therefore was not going to fly and now Ten years on, we've just got an Apple version, which is much more sophisticated and looks looks much better, but costs three and a half thousand dollars. So that still
0: doesn't really feel like it's there. So what might it look like if that technology does take off? Would it be like just wearing a normal pair of spectacles or sunglasses?
1: Well, there there are. There are. You, know, you can get Ray-Bans with, with um, kind of Facebook built in. Um if you really want to, Um, the the big, big unknown here is consumer acceptance, really. I mean, wonderful things can be done with a lot of these different headsets you know, the the virtual reality uh, Oculus Rift kind of headsets, virtual reality headsets, that they are brilliant, but there then comes the question of whether people want to live in this, that world. You remember Mark Zuckerberg changed the name of his company to Meta. And bet everything on the metaverse uh, eighteen months ago, and now it's gone really quiet because he's betting everything on AI and the you know the spending on the metaverse where we would all live, and there was this grotesque video of avatars of him and Nick Clegg uh, chewing the fat, which attracted widespread derision. So somehow you've you've got to take the tech and not not allow it to attract
0: widespread derision. I think. Is it possible, Rory, that we could just get to the point where we don't actually need or want any great further technological advancement in this sort of area, in the area, let's say, of communications and entertainment? Or do you think we will always keep developing? And yes, there might be some stalling along the way, but we will progress inevitably?
1: Well, what what has happened over the last 50 odd years is that Software has advanced at an extraordinary rate, but hardware hasn't. So things that, again, coming back to AI, things that computers are really brilliant at, learning languages, doing doing math, doing complicated uh, examinations of the structures of proteins and so on, things computers are really bad at, playing football, uh, washing up, um, and so on. You know, the, the 1960s vision of life today was we'd all have, be working 15-hour weeks and have robot butlers, and it hasn't quite worked out like that. So I think there will still be a yearning for practical, helpful robots.
0: How did you get to where you've got to? This is question number 18, Rory. What sort of child You, you touched on it briefly earlier, but what sort of childhood did you have? And was it always ordained that you would go to Cambridge and then you would make a success, as you have, of your career.
1: Well, I've just written a, a book which sort of covers that about my childhood, but in particular about my extraordinary mother, who was a, a twice a single mother, worked in the BBC during the war in 1941. She was a married woman um, who had to give up her job because when you were married, you, you gave up your job. The, the war changed her life. Uh, she joined the BBC and thought it was wonderful, left her husband over it because he disapproved of the BBC, came to London with a, a young son who was my older half-brother, worked in television drama, had an affair with a much younger man who was my father, who went on to become a famous TV director and brought me up, then spent another 20 years being a single mother to me because they they split up before I was born. And I didn't then meet my father till I was 23. So television was sort of in my bones. Was it ordained that I go to Cambridge? Well, my mum fought tooth and nail with very little money to get me the best education she could. And I got a a free or at least an assisted place at Dulwich College, which put me on that track. Was it inevitable that I'd end up in television? Well, I was taken to television centre when my mum was working at the weekends, from the age of five and thought it was better than going to Disneyland. so I was in love with it, but I really wanted to be a newspaper reporter and somehow stumbled into television instead.
0: Maybe therein lies the importance of writing as you see it. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, the reason I know so much about all of this now is that when my mother died in 1996 and I cleared out her flat, she'd left thousands of letters and documents. She kept carbon copies of many of the letters she'd typed, including letters to family intimate letters about her life and right at the center of this there was a box of letters marked uh with, with a, a in, uh, inside a brown envelope saying uh for rory to think about and in the hope that he'll understand how it really was which was and under, underneath that there was a hotel bill for april 1957 for two nights bed and breakfast at the ang- uh, the three crowns in Angering on sea um, I was born, by the way, in January 1958, so as they say, do the mass. And then beneath that were my father's love letters. So my life was, or my mother's life, was written down. She wrote down, she left a perfect record of her life in letters, which changed my view of her after she died, because she was, turned out to be
0: a brilliant writer. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. But What I was getting at was that you thought you might or wanted to become a, a newspaper journalist, And you said earlier that an important quality you feel as a broadcast journalist is the ability to write. So I wondered whether there was a link between those two things.
1: Yeah. I mean, writing has always been important to me. I I never had confidence as a child at school that I could write. I would never write fiction because I just I was embarrassed to write fiction. But at university, one of my best teachers, a German German academic who was great, wrote on one of my essays about Kafka, well-written but wrong, you'll make a good journalist. So <laughs> I, I, I prized that, as it were.
0: Very droll. Uh, what, what, something that I find curious and interesting is that you didn't meet your father until you were an adult, but you took his name, his surname. Ah, oh, well, that was
1: all revealed in the um, in the cache of documents and letters. I found the reason for that. Because I grew up, I didn't take his surname, I was given his surname, and that was because the day before I was born, my mother, and there's a document amongst, that I've got upstairs, a deed poll, changed her name from Mrs. Rich to Mrs. Kathleen Jones, so that I should have my father's name. It's incredible to think about that, isn't it? It is, it is. I would have been Rory Rich otherwise, and would probably not, maybe not have known about my dad or... but she didn't. She wanted me to have his name.
0: This has been a wonderful podcast, as I anticipated it would be, Rory, because I know you a little bit. We've been on stage together. I like you enormously. It's difficult not to like you. And you come across so well as a broadcaster. Final question. Obviously, we know a bit about Sophie. We know that you're married. We know that you are busy and active. And I think you're a technology consultant as well as being a podcaster and so forth. What What are your passions? if we leave aside everything i've just mentioned tell us what really makes you tick what you what you love doing or being a part of i love baking i'm a very keen baker i'm a
1: brentford Football supporter, which right now is a very painful thing to beat because we keep
0: losing. You're not doing as well as you did last season. I, I went to, to watch Spurs play Brentford last season when I think you won 3-1. You haven't had the best season, but you're still not doing badly. I mean, a few years ago, if, if I told you that you were whatever you are now, 15th, 16th, is it, in the Premier League? Yeah, yeah. It's quite a good story.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, it has been wonderful. The, the journey to the Premiership has been wonderful and I've really enjoyed that. So that, that, that is another of my passions. And, um, you know, I come back to to Sophie, who is sitting quietly listening to us right now, actually, stare, staring at us there in the corner. I think you can see her on Zoom. She is slightly all-consuming. It's like having a moody teenager. You know, they do affect the
0: mood of the whole house. <laughs> but this is what I meant about taking you out of yourself or taking you out of... Parkinson's it doesn't have to be going for a walk although you went for a successful walk this week as you say but just that there's this other being to have love poured onto
1: yes and sharing it with you know these thousands of fans which is is kind of wonderful um it 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 is an amazing connection and one that I never thought I would have because you know pets didn't used to mean anything to me but this one does somehow.
0: And technology, as we know, can it can take us out of the moment. It can take us away from being present with our family or our friends, but it can also, there are also some great things about it and can connect us, can't it? It can create communities.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of negativity at the moment about the smartphone and about social media, which both have their negative sides, their addictive sides. But... um we mustn't forget that the, the the connections that they give us, and the, you know, I've made lots of friends from from social media that I would never have encountered, and I've also kept up relationships with distant relatives that otherwise I might have just completely drifted apart from. So, I'm quite a glass half full man about about technology.
0: Rory ketland Jones, thank you so much for answering my twenty questions. Thank you. It's been great fun.